Welcome and thank you for joining me on episode 5 of Galaxy Rise. This is the March 2019 edition of the show and I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. For many reasons, February is both my favorite and most disliked month of the year. I've wrestled with the midwinter blahs attached to this month for decades, and I've really only found solace in focusing my efforts on some creative output. Back in 2005, New Hampshire Seacoast alternative newspaper, The Wire, came up with the RPM Challenge. This musical creative challenge was to write and record an album in the short and typically uninspiring month of February. To meet the objectives of 10 songs or 35 minutes of music, musicians are encouraged to collaborate, work outside their normal styles, and experiment with different production techniques. Over the first year, 220 musicians and bands signed up, and 165 completed the challenge by March 1st deadline. Back then, the goal was to deliver or mail a CD of the album, with artists going to great lengths to create intricate album art and packaging for their submissions. The next year saw some international media attention, and it grew to over 2,200 participants globally, with a large number of them completing as well. Year over year, growth has flattened a bit, and we now average about 1,000 participants annually. RPM HQ announced the 2019 challenge with this message. RPM Challenge launched 14 years ago, and in that time, more than 80,000 songs have been created by tens of thousands of musicians from around the great orb of the Earth. 14 years is how long it has taken NASA's New Horizons spacecraft to pass through the great disk of our solar system, and both it and the musicians of RPM now stand poised to begin exploring the great unknown that lies beyond. We've all learned a lot along the way, but will it be enough to prepare us for the strange new discoveries that await us in the deep space of our souls? Indeed, my participation in RPM has enabled me to reach out in many areas of my creativity and has inspired me to push myself in ways I may not have ever done. It's also forged many friendships and provided support through an online community of musicians from around the world. It's also pretty epic that they connected RPM with the New Horizons mission. As I've said before, this whole excursion into space-related outreach began a year ago for me. One of the first missions I dug into deeply was New Horizons large part due to the mission leaders Alan Stearns and planetary scientist David Grinspoon's book, Chasing New Horizons, which told the whole story of the mission from its beginnings to its Pluto flyby in 2015. Also, the spacecraft is racing towards its January 1st, 2019 rendezvous with Ultima Thule, the furthest away solar system body to be explored by humankind. I always pick some theme for my RPM album, and this year it was Charles Darwin. I've never really read much about him, nor any of his work. However, I'd recently finished Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, which was a bit of a whirlwind overview of almost all science as of 2003. So the various chapters devoted to evolution and Darwin's personal life were quite enlightening. Anyway, pop over to soundcloud.com forward slash starstuffstudios. Check out the latest playlist I've got there for the album called The Transmutation of Species. So here we are, a year later, Another RPM challenge completed, releasing the fifth episode of the show, ready for winter to end and spring to begin. I've got lots of irons in the fire, and I'm feeling more confident and comfortable every day. So, off we go to explore what's going on in the world of space exploration and astronomy, and to check out some music from musicians who actively write and record music year-round. Thanks for joining me.
Off their brand new album Revenant on Burning Witches Records, that's Worried About Satan. The album is a departure from their normal style and ventures into a darker, more synth-heavy area. This track is Wasteland, and it's the final track on the album. The band is on tour in the UK this month, and I wish them well. Pick this up over at burningwitchesrecords.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Launch Report. This month, as usual, we'll check in some recent space and aerospace news, as well as review the recent and upcoming rocket launches. VSS John Young, Northrop Grumman's Cygnus cargo spacecraft, departed the International Space Station on February 8th and performed a number of on-orbit activities. Ascending to about 445 kilometers, Cygnus released two nanoracks CubeSats into orbit, MySat-1 and ChefSat. The spacecraft then lowered to an altitude of 300 kilometers to deploy the KickSat-2. MySat-1 is a joint program from UAE Yasat Khalifa University of Science and Technology and Northrop Grumman. ChefSat is the cost-effective high-E frequency satellite, is a testing communication technology for use in private and research CubeSats, and is a mission of the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. And finally, KickSat-2 was selected for flight by NASA's CubeSat launch initiative. Assistant Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at Stanford University, Zach Manchester, is the principal investigator for KickSat Project, which NASA adopted as an official mission. Yes, KickSat 2 is alive, Manchester announced. We've been tracking it since Thursday, February 14th, and have been able to decode at least some packets. The signal is weak, and we think the antenna did not properly deploy on the CubeSat. KickSat 2 was deployed well below the International Space Station altitude due to the satellite's subdeploying smaller chipsats a prototype representing a disruptive new space technology. These chipsats, also known as sprites, are tiny spacecraft that include power, sensors, and communication systems on a printed circuit board that measures 3.5 by 3.5 centimeters, with a thickness of just a few millimeters and the mass of a few grams. The chipsats are expected to be in orbit for merely a few days before they burn up. The NanoRack's external Cygnus program is the first program to have leveraged a commercial resupply vehicle for use beyond the primary cargo delivery to the space station. With successful completion of this mission, NanoRax has deployed 35 satellites from the Cygnus into multiple orbits. NASA, Boeing, and SpaceX are preparing to test the company's two new crew delivery systems. The agency is now targeting March 2nd for the launch of SpaceX's Crew Dragon and its uncrewed Demo-1 test flight. Boeing's uncrewed orbital flight test is targeted for launch no earlier than April. These new dates allow for completion of necessary hardware testing, data verification, remaining NASA and provider reviews, as well as training of flight controllers and mission managers. The uncrewed test flights will be the first time commercially built and operated American spacecraft designed for humans will dock with the space station. The first flights are dress rehearsals for missions with astronauts aboard the vehicles. Commercial crew has continued working towards these historic missions throughout the month of January. The uncrewed flight tests are a great dry run not only for our hardware, but for our team to get ready for our crewed flight tests, says Kathy Loiters, Commercial Crew Program Manager. NASA has been working together with SpaceX and Boeing to make sure we're ready to conduct these flights and to get ready for critical information that will help us fly our crews safely. We always learn from tests. In January, SpaceX successfully completed a static fire of the Falcon 9, with Crew Dragon atop the rocket at Kennedy Space Center's Launch Complex 39A in Florida, in preparation for Demo-1. Boeing's CST-100 Starliner continues to undergo testing in preparation for its orbital test flight. 
and United Launch Alliance is conducting final processing to the Atlas V rocket that will launch Starliner from Space Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. After the uncrewed test flights, Boeing and SpaceX will complete flight tests with crew prior to certification from NASA for crewed rotation missions. Crew missions are tentatively planned to begin for SpaceX in July and Boeing in August 2019. Firefly Aerospace, a Texas-based launch venture recently lifted out of bankruptcy, has struck a deal with Space Florida to establish business operations at Cape Canaveral Spaceport. Firefly will build a 150,000-square-foot rocket manufacturing facility at Space Florida's Exploration Park and set up a launch facility at Cape Canaveral's Space Launch Complex 20. Firefly says it will invest $52 million into the project and bring more than 200 jobs to Florida. Space Florida has agreed to match up to $18.9 million of Firefly's infrastructure investments via the Florida Transportation Department Spaceport Improvement Program. Other companies with facilities at Exploration Park include OneWeb Satellites and Blue Origin. Firefly Aerospace is proud to announce the newest member of the Florida Space Coast family, Firefly CEO Tom Markusik announced on February 22nd. Our mass production manufacturing facility in Exploration Park will enable Firefly to produce 24 Alpha vehicles in a year, enabling a launch cadence that will support the rapidly expanding global small satellite revolution and the commercialization of cis lunar space. The company was founded as Firefly Space Systems in 2014 and conducted its first hot-fire rocket engine test the following year. However, a European investor backed out in 2016 in the aftermath of Britain's Brexit vote to withdraw from the European Union, sending this startup towards bankruptcy. The company was reborn as Firefly Aerospace with backing from NewSphere Venture Partners. Pre-launch testing and fabrication has resumed, and Firefly is aiming to conduct its first alpha launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California by the end of this year. Even before its first flight, the venture has secured its place among eight other launch companies on NASA's list of commercial providers for lunar deliveries, and has a deal with Seattle-based Spaceflight for satellite and rideshare launch contracts. The space industry is expected to be the fastest growing segment in the worldwide economy in the coming decades, with analysts predicting a global market of over $1 trillion a year by 2040, Markusik said. Firefly Aerospace is uniquely positioned to be successful in this new economy. February was an extremely light month for launches. On the 5th, Ariane Space successfully launched an Ariane 5 ECA rocket, designated VA-247, delivering two satellites to orbit. The Lockheed Martin-built Arabsat and Saudi Arabian joint mission known as Hilasat-4 and Geosat-1, and then the Indian Space Research Organization's GSAT-31 communication satellite. On February 11th, news emerged that Iran failed to place the Dosti remote sensing satellite into orbit. On the 5th, Digiglobe's Worldview 3 Earth observation satellite took images of the launch pad, clearly depicting an Iranian Safir rocket ready to fly. On the 6th, follow-up images showed no rocket, and evidence of scorching and post-launch water washdown runoff. International satellite tracking systems detected no new orbital craft present following that effort. On February 21st, Roscosmos launched a Russian Soyuz rocket from the Balkanor Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, successfully placing the Egyptsat A satellite into orbit. Also on the 21st, SpaceX launched a Falcon 9 rocket carrying the Indonesian PSN-6 communication satellite along with the Spaceflight Industries rideshare mission, consisting of the privately funded Israeli Space IL Bereshit Lunar Lander and S-5, a small experimental satellite for the U.S. Air Force. This is Spaceflight's first mission beyond low Earth orbit. 
Ariane Space launched its Soyuz VS-21 rocket on February 27th, sending the first six satellites for OneWeb to orbit from its Guiana Space Center in South Africa. Coming up in March, we've got a full schedule of launches as many from February were pushed out for various reasons. On March 2nd, SpaceX is planning to launch the Falcon 9 rocket with the Crew Dragon Demo-1 spacecraft on an uncrewed flight test to the International Space Station. Then on the 9th, Arian Space will launch a Vega rocket, designated VV-14, with the Prisma satellite for the Italian Space Agency. On March 13th, the United Launch Alliance Delta IV rocket will launch the 10th wideband global SATCOM spacecraft from Cape Canaveral. NASA astronauts Nick Haig and Christina Hammack and Alexei Ovchin of the Russian Space Agency will lift off March 14th from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan on a Russian Soyuz rocket bound towards the ISS. On the 26th, Arian Space Soyuz rocket, designated VS-22, will launch on a mission carrying the fifth set of four satellites for O3B networks. And still potentially in March, we're going to keep an eye out for a number of other launches. Rocket Lab intends to launch an electron rocket with a DARPA payload. The Indian Space Research Organization hopes to launch two more PSLV rockets. The long-delayed L-1011 aircraft launched Pegasus XL rocket with NASA's ICON Ionosphere Research Satellite. And keep an eye out for the scheduled return of SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket and its second launch since last year's infamous inaugural flight featuring dual booster landings and the spaceman Tesla Roadster orbital insertion. The track is called What Are The Odds, and it's the seventh track off the new album Sleep In Perpetual Storm by the band Lowering. The artist, Chris Illis, is co-founder of the label Disintegration State, which released the album this month. Illis has cited the ideas of civilization's ending, 
and how the story of humanity can be read as a series of minor apocalypses as inspiration for his album. Well, the album does have indeed a bit of a looming ambient tone, but it is quite airy and uplifting in many spots as well. You can buy and stream this over at lowering.bandcamp.com. This month on the Hubble Moment, we're going to learn about the Outer Planet Atmosphere Legacy, or OPAL program. In 2015, Amy Simon, principal investigator of OPAL, wrote a results report abstract stating, Long-time observations of the outer planets are critical in understanding the atmospheric dynamics and evolution of gas giants. We propose yearly monitoring of each giant planet for the remainder of Hubble's lifetime to provide a lasting legacy of increasingly valuable data for time domain studies. The Hubble Space Telescope is a unique asset to planetary science, allowing high spatial resolution data with absolute photometric knowledge. For the outer planets, gas ice giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, many phenomena happen on timescales of years to decades, and the data we propose are beyond the scope of a typical general observation program. Hubble is the only platform that can provide high spatial resolution global studies of cloud coloration, activity, and motion on a consistent time basis to help constrain the underlying mechanics. Saturn was exempt until 2018 due to its orbit, but images of the other three outer planets began in October 2014 and completed the most recent imaging cycle in September 2018. The project will ultimately observe all the giant planets in the solar system with a wide range of filters. Recently, the program has given us new images of the planet Uranus, the seventh planet in the solar system. Past observations of Uranus using Hubble have led to many interesting insights about the cold ice giant. In 2006, the telescope managed to capture a shot in which the moon Ariel and its accompanying shadow were traversing the face of Uranus, and in 2011, Hubble was able to paint faint auroras in its atmosphere. Observations made over the course of several years also allowed astronomers to study the planet's faint ring system as its inclination changed with respect to Earth's orbit. The latest image, taken with Hubble's Wide Field Camera 3, adds to the legacy of images already taken and will provide scientists with even more new insight to our distant neighbor. Since Pluto's demotion from full-fledged planet to dwarf planet, Neptune holds the title of outermost planet in the solar system. The observations of Neptune, carried out in September and November of 2018, show the first evidence of a huge storm brewing, with discovery of a new northern great dark spot. This new dark storm is a similar size and shape to the storm discovered in 1989 by the Voyager 2 space probe. While the future evolution of the storm will be tracked through the continued yearly Hubble observations, and also by ground-based telescopes, older Opal observations from Hubble showed that its appearance was predicted and preceded by increased cloud activity throughout the region. There are hints of the storm forming in images from as early as 2015. This slow origin process indicates the storm was developed deeply within Neptune's atmosphere, pulling up dark material from its depths, and only became visible once the top of it reached higher altitudes. As stated, the main goal of Opal is to observe each of the giant planets for long-duration studies of storm activity, wind field variation, and changes in aerosol distributions and colors. These data can be used with older Hubble and other spacecraft datasets to expand the time domain even further. As an example, Jupiter was examined extensively with Hubble's Wide Field Planetary Camera 2 over 15 years ago, and has been periodically visited by a number of other spacecraft including the two Voyagers, Cassini and New Horizons. 
Each of these provided a single snapshot in time, but when placed in context, contribute a larger picture of the evolving atmosphere. The Galileo spacecraft observed the planet for eight years, but could not provide global coverage due to the limited bandwidth available with the low-gain antenna and lack of a wide-field angle camera. A primary feature of the OPAL program is that, for each planet, two full rotations are acquired in a variety of filters optimized to allow the best science return for that target. This means that, in addition to global views or zonal wind profiles, we'll also be able to obtain global, two-dimensional wind fields for each year of the planet. This unprecedented data is beginning to allow new insights into the complex atmospheric circulations and their variations. In addition, this coverage will allow a complete census of visible storms and any serendipitous features present in each year. Just Google Hubble, O-P-A-L, and you will find a link to the correct section of their site and the first search result. As long as the Hubble Space Telescope stays operational, astronomers will continue to find new ways to leverage the diversity of the powerful instruments to better understand our cosmos, as well as our own solar system. a remix by Audio Glider of the track Urban Cruising from the band Sone out on the label A Strangely Isolated Place. Originally a blog I discovered about 10 years ago, A Strangely Isolated Place has released a steady flow of excellent electronic music with strong leaning towards ambient and space music. You can pick this up off the Uncharted Places compilation, which was released back in 2013. Many thanks to the label for letting me feature their catalog on the show. Pick this up and all their music over at a strangely isolated place.bandcamp.com. This month on Exclusively Exos, we're going to review some recently released research findings and also the emerging role of amateur exoplanet hunters. 
In a study published on February 4th, researchers proposed that a giant impact may be the answer to questions of an odd exoplanet couple. Astronomers know of four planets orbiting the star Kepler-107, which lies in the constellation Cygnus. The two innermost planets, Kepler-107b and Kepler-107c, are both about 1.5 times the diameter of the Earth. But their densities are very different, according to a team led by Aldo Bonomo of the National Institute for Astrophysics in Pino Torinese, Italy. Using a telescope in the Canary Islands, the scientists tracked changes in Kepler-107's light as the planet's gravity tugged at the star. According to the team's calculations, Kepler-107c is more than twice as dense as the similarly sized neighbor. The scientists proposed that Kepler-107c was much larger, but a catastrophic collision with an unknown object stripped off some of the planet's outer layers and left mostly an iron-rich core. If confirmed, the findings would constitute the first evidence of a giant impact in a world beyond the solar system. Cataclysmic collisions between space rocks have helped explain some of the solar system's biggest mysteries, from how the Earth's own moon formed to how Uranus got flipped over on its side. Theories suggest that planets typically form from the accumulation of gas and dust swirling around a young star. Denser rocky planets should form closer to the star because heavier elements like iron don't dissipate as easily as lighter elements like hydrogen and helium. Kepler-107c, however, doesn't fit that scenario. It's farther from its star than Kepler-107b, but it's more massive, says Eric Lopez, an astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Flight Center, in a recent article on sciencenews.org. The researchers considered several possible explanations, including Kepler-107c's forming closer to its star, then migrating away. But only one explanation resulted in Kepler-107c being more massive than the closer Kepler-107b, a giant collision between two worlds, each about 10 times Earth's mass. We expect impacts to happen, but we don't really have any idea how common they might be outside the solar system, Lopez says. Computer simulations of the collision of two large rocky worlds, each with an iron core composing 30% of their mass, produced a single planet whose mass is nearly 70% iron, possibly similar to Kepler-107c. Most of the remaining material vaporized during the collision, these simulations suggest. From a planet formation scenario, this is really interesting because it shows us that these kinds of planetary systems, impacts make a difference, says Cayman Underborn, an exogeologist at Arizona State University. But Underborn still questions whether the study presents an unambiguous example of an exoplanet formed by a collision, especially because the study extrapolates Kepler-107c's mantle and core structures from its density. Having the density of the planet, you can tell if it's rocky-ish or watery-ish or gassy-ish, Underborn says, but actually getting how big the mantle is versus the core is kind of tough, because there are so many ways a planet could be structured and still have the same density. But Unterborn says he's hopeful the study spurs some healthy debate about the origins of planets that are kind of weird. For more details, go check out the full article written by Jeremy Rehm from February 4th over at sciencenews.org. NASA announced that the TESS Space Telescope added three new exoplanets to a list of confirmed discoveries, all of them with the weight or mass comparable to Neptune's. GJ143b is twice the mass of Neptune. It orbits a K-type star an orange star smaller than our sun, about 53 light-years away. A year on this planet, or one orbit around its star, is only 35 days long. Two more planets, HD 23472b and C, are siblings, both orbiting the same parent star, which is about 127 light-years away. Both weigh in about the same mass as Neptune, also orbit a K star, and have very short years, 18 days and 30 days respectively. 
A fourth discovery was announced at the same time, unrelated to TESS but also involving the transit method, this time by ground-based instruments. HATS 70B, some 4,200 light-years from Earth, tips the scale at roughly 13 times the mass of Jupiter. It might be a brown dwarf, a kind of failed star that, despite its enormity, did not have enough mass to ignite nuclear reactions in its core and become a star in its own right. It's rather astonishing, but amateur astronomers are contributing quite a bit towards the search for exoplanets. Amateurs, like most pros, can't observe planets beyond the solar system directly, but they can monitor a star and watch for transit method detections. These are dips in the brightness caused by the planet passing in between its sun and Earth. The amount of blocked starlight relates to the size of the planet, while the frequency of the dips reveals information about the planet's orbit. Unless a planet is orbiting very close to its star, these transits may happen over the course of many months or years. Large professional telescopes are fully booked for a range of scientific research and time is precious. It is indeed difficult to devote time to this kind of work. Amateur observers, meanwhile, are well suited to make these kinds of observations. They can stare at planet-hosting star for as long as they'd like. Recently, the American Association of Variable Star Observers, or AAVSO, a 100-year-old astronomical society based in Cambridge, Mass, released the first online database devoted to cataloging amateur exoplanetary observations. Users submit entries on the new exoplanetary online database portion of the existing WebOps catalog. An amateur submission requires the user's site, equipment profiles, one or more images associated with the observation, and a text file that contains specific details on the exoplanet observed. Site visitors can also search by star, exoplanet, date range, and even specific observers for extant data. The database emphasizes the value that non-professionals bring to the field of science, says AAVSO Executive Officer Stella Kafka in a recent release. People with moderate means can contribute from the ground to the knowledge base of the community. In principle, one can see the AAVSO as an international collaboration between professionals and non-professional astronomers, working together to understand some of the most exciting phenomena in the universe. Needless to say, the amateur exo-hunter movement is growing in numbers and is clearly relevant. Visit www.aavso.org for more details on the catalog and the society itself.
That's the band Phantom vs. Fire with the track Swim off the album of the same name. Swim was released by Burning Witches Records back in March of 2018. The band has a new album coming out very soon. In the words of Aaron Velling over at Velingo.com, the album is an extraordinary palette of acoustic, organic, and electronic synthetic instruments, carefully and methodically splashed on an absorptive canvas. You can buy or stream this album over at burningwitchesrecords.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Mission Control. NASA has selected a new space mission that will help astronomers understand how both our universe evolved and how common the ingredients for life are in our galaxy's planetary systems. The spectrophotometer for the history of the universe, Epoch and Reionization and Isis Explorer, Sphere-X, is a two-year mission funded at $242 million and it's targeted to launch in 2023. Sphere-X will survey the sky and optical as well as near-infrared light, which, though not visible to the human eye, serves as a powerful tool for answering cosmic questions. Astronomers will use the mission to gather data on more than 300 million galaxies, as well as more than 100 million stars in our own Milky Way. Sphere-X will survey hundreds of millions of galaxies near and far, some so distant that their light has taken 10 billion years to reach Earth. In the Milky Way, the mission will search for water and organic molecules essential for life as we know it, in stellar nurseries, regions where stars are born from gas and dust, as well as disks around stars where new planets could be forming. Every six months, Spherix will survey the entire sky using technologies adapted from Earth satellites and Mars spacecraft. The mission will create a map of the entire sky in 96 different color bands, far exceeding the color resolution of previous all-sky maps. It will also identify targets for more detailed study by future missions, such as NASA's James Webb Space Telescope and Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, WFIRST. The mission's principal investigator is James Bach of Caltech in Pasadena, California. Caltech will work with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory to develop the mission payload. GPL will also manage the mission. On February 13th, administrators announced that NASA's Opportunity rover mission has come to its end. The rover spent almost 15 years exploring the surface of Mars. The Opportunity rover stopped communicating with Earth when a severe Mars-wide dust storm blanketed its location in June 2018. After more than a thousand commands to restore contact, engineers at Space Flight Operations Facility at NASA's JPL made their last attempt to revive Opportunity Tuesday, February 12th, to no avail. The solar-powered rover's final communication was received on June 10th. Designed to last just 90 Martian days and travel 1,100 yards, Opportunity vastly surpassed all expectations in its endurance, scientific value, and longevity. In addition to exceeding its life expectancy by 60 times, the rover traveled more than 28 miles by the time it reached its most appropriate final resting spot on Mars, Perseverance Valley. I cannot think of a more appropriate place for the opportunity to endure on the surface of Mars than one called Perseverance Valley, said Michael Wilkins, director of JPL. The records, discoveries, and sheer tenacity of this intrepid little rover is testament to the ingenuity, dedication, and perseverance of the people who built and guided her. The final transmissions sent via the 70-meter Mars station antenna at NASA's Goldstone Deep Space Complex in California ended a multifaceted eight-month recovery strategy in the attempt to compel the rover to communicate. Opportunity landed in the Meridiani Planum region of Mars on January 24, 2004. Its twin rover, Spirit, landed 20 days earlier in the 103-mile-wide Gusov crater on the other side of Mars. Spirit logged about five miles before its mission wrapped up in May of 2011. 
When I think of opportunity, I will recall that place on Mars where our rover far exceeded everyone's expectations, says John Callis, manager of the Mars Exploration Rover Project at JPL. But what I suppose I'll cherish the most is the impact opportunity had on us here on Earth. It's the accomplished exploration and phenomenal discoveries. It's the generation of young scientists and engineers who became space explorers with this mission. It's the public that followed along with our every step. And it's the technical legacy of the Mars Exploration Rovers, which is carried on by curiosity in the upcoming Mars 2020 missions. Farewell, Opportunity, and well done. An evocative new image sequence from NASA's New Horizons spacecraft offers a departing view of the Kuiper Belt object nicknamed Ultima Thule, the target of the New Year's 2019 flyby and the most distant world ever explored. These aren't the last images New Horizons will send back to Earth, in fact many more are to come, but they're the final views New Horizons captured as it raced past at over 31,000 miles per hour on January 1st. The images were taken nearly 10 minutes after New Horizons crossed its closest approach point. This is really an incredible image sequence taken by a spacecraft exploring a small world 4 billion miles from Earth, said Mission Principal Investigator Alan Stern of the Southwest Research Institute. Nothing quite like this has ever been captured in imagery. The newly released images also contain important scientific information about the shape of Ultima Thule, which is turning out to be one of the major discoveries from the flyby. The first close-up images, with two distinct and apparently spherical segments, had observers calling it a snowman. However, more analysis of the approach images and these new departure images have changed that view, in part by revealing an outline of the portion of the KBO that was not illuminated by the sun, but could be traced out as it was blocked the view of background stars. Stringing 14 of these images into a short departure movie, New Horizons scientists can confirm that the two sections, or lobes, are not at all spherical. The larger lobe, named Ultima, more closely resembles a giant pancake, and the smaller lobe, nicknamed Thule, is shaped like a dented walnut. We had an impression of Ultima Thule based on the limited number of images returned in the days around the flyby, but seeing more data has significantly changed our view, Stern says. But more importantly, the new images are creating scientific puzzles about how such an object could even be formed. We've never seen something like this orbiting the sun.
Off the January 2019 release, Open Sea, that's Hunter Complex, with the track Account of the Moon. This is off the Death Waltz label and is followed up to their 2013 release, Heat. Open Sea is a fun and upbeat album as a whole, with a blend of electrobeat and 80s movie soundtrackish synths and drum patterns. You can check it out and buy it online at huntercomplex.bandcamp.com. This month on Unlikely Encounters, I'm going back to the Betty and Barney Hill abduction story. I've assembled all of Carl Sagan's various insights from when the Hills were questioned on a David Schoenberg show back in March 1967. Credit for this recording goes to Wendy Connors and Roderick B. Dyke, archivists at the Archives for UFO Research. Good evening, I'm David Schoenberg. We're gathered together tonight to hear an extraordinary story, one of the most fascinating stories in the history of man. Whether it is true or false is something that you will judge after you've heard the story and a discussion of it by a panel of scientists and science editors. Dr. Leo Sprinkle, counselor and assistant professor of psychology at the University of Wyoming. Mr. Edward Edelson, science editor of the World Journal Tribune of New York. Professor James McDonald, an atmospheric physics professor at the University of Arizona. Mr. Leon Jarrett, science editor of Time magazine. And Carl Sagan, professor at Harvard University and also at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Hill, for your story. I believe it began on the night of the 19th of September, 1961, as you were driving home from a vacation in Canada and something happened near Lancaster, New Hampshire. We were driving along on Route 3 when suddenly, right near the moon, I noticed a new star which was much larger and brighter than the other stars in the sky. And then when we got in the area of Indian Head, it suddenly swung out over the highway in front of our car. At this time, I could see a row of windows around the edge and a red light on each side. And it was at this point that Barney stopped the car and he decided to get out to get a good look at it and to identify it. I walked quite a distance in the field and uh, I saw what I thought were figures standing by this huge plate glass looking back at me. I couldn't believe it. I dashed back to the car screaming to Betty that, uh, oh my gosh, I said something is going, I said, it's going to capture us is what I said. There was a series of beeps and then later there was another series of beeps. Betty asked me if I now believed in flying saucers and I told her, don't be ridiculous, of course not. All right, I think that the panel has been uh, very patient, I'm sure very interested in everything that's been said, and perhaps we might ask who would like to start the questioning, uh, Dr. Sagan of uh, Harvard University, and I think also of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory at Harvard. All right, Dr. Sagan. Well, uh, I'd like to begin the questioning, if I may, with, uh, with one uh, general line of, of inquiry. Our present understanding of the evolution of uh, of life on Earth is that uh, it's a slow process of evolution by natural selection, that human beings are the product of uh, several billions of years of uh, random mutation, accidental effects uh, leading up to what we are now. If events were even slightly different in the previous history of the Earth, we think that we would not wind up with things that are closely human beings, but with something else. Now, other planets certainly have environments quite different from those uh, on the Earth, 
and uh, therefore we would expect that beings that evolved there would have even greater differences and uh, would not look closely like human beings. And that's why I was interested to uh, see that the characterization of the uh, inhabitants of uh, this supposed uh, extraterrestrial space vehicle were with a few minor differences very closely human. Head, two eyes, something like a nose, mouth, hands, feet, and so on. This, this seemed to me to have an intrinsic implausibility about it. it seemed to me that uh, much more likely that this was putting, uh, projecting human experience onto perhaps something else. The, the one question I'd like to ask is uh, fingers. How many fingers? You didn't uh, notice any uh, uh, Dr. Sagan. Didn't notice any fingers. How about earlobes? I didn't notice ears. Uh, how about Mrs. Uh, may I just briefly inject something here? Uh, we were on another discussion, and after very quietly, more or less, very relaxed, discussing for about two and a half hours, the scientists questioned us very closely about the absence of uh, our seeing or noticing hands, so the announcer put a paper over my hand and asked the scientist, what about my hands? Had he noticed anything? Was I wearing a ring or not? And he had to admit he hadn't noticed them. This would have been a much more relaxed uh, situation. Right, well, but, but the point is that you did notice uh, some details, and I was interested in uh, in whether you had noticed some other details. Yes, no, I had not. How about had here? Anybody? No, I didn't. There's no doubt that there are a fair, small fact of these sightings which remain unknown. That is very different from saying that the only possible explanation of these unknowns is that they're space vehicles from another planet. And if you look at the number of relatively obscure natural phenomena which have been uh, identified, misapprehended as flying saucers, you see that uh, nature is very complicated. And I wonder if it very well be that there are things in the atmosphere of the Earth, things of a biological nature, uh, things in particular involving atmospheric refraction, which can explain the category of unknowns. The mere fact that we don't know it means just that. It doesn't mean that an extraterrestrial visitation is the only possible explanation. I'd just like to point out that if these are visits, visitors from another planet, they're going about this in a very illogical, let's say, unearthly way. <laughs> well, that's not no. <laughs> no, as Dr. Sagan has pointed out, the, the unidentifieds cover, are, come in various different shapes, so apparently they've sent a whole fleet of these things here. They have gone to very great expense to come long distances, and yet somehow they don't want to open contact with us. They seem to delight in deserted places and in hard maneuvers. And uh, I think one point Dr. Sagan mentioned in his book is that astronomers have been pointing telescopes toward the sky and taking pictures, many pictures, of the night sky. And there has been a singular lack of provable UFOs on those pictures. E even when, uh, I might add, these... Uh sky surveys have been designed to look for rapidly moving uh, objects, namely the study of meteors. Now, and I think this tends to explain the general skepticism of the astronomical community towards the flying saucer reports in general. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things up there that are unidentified. But let me reiterate again that uh, unidentified doesn't mean extraterrestrial. It means we don't understand it. And I, I quite agree that, uh, that, that there's something there to be found out. I think there's probably things meteorological, things geophysical, and almost certainly things psychological.
music right there from the artist Corey Kildoff from the album When It All Gets To Be Too Much on Burning Witches Records with a track that is called Not Like The Others. The album is all synthesizers with no drums or beats to speak of. Swirling pads and arpeggios abound. And in this particular track, I think he channels the band M83 quite nicely. The album is great overall and is a tribute to Molly Ringwald and the roles she played in all of John Hughes' movies. Another hot release which you can pick up from burningwitchesrecords.bandcamp.com. Wrapping up the show, we've got Night Vision. And this month, I'm going to focus on the role of amateur citizen science in support of professional astronomical research. This is just one more way an everyday person can get involved with astronomy, despite not having access to clear skies, telescopes, or local clubs. My first exposure to this concept was when I discovered CosmoQuest.org, where visitors are encouraged to scan through thousands of images of the Moon, Mars, and Mercury, identifying craters of all sizes. The goal there was to provide input data used to develop improved computer algorithms using mapping and crater documentation. CosmoQuest has a great definition of citizen science as it relates to astronomy. Put simply, citizen science is the science done by everyday people that has the potential to lead to new understanding of the universe we share. This can vary from people studying Earth's climate change by recording when first flowers bloom, to studying weather on Mars by recording the seasonal dust storms. One way that citizen scientists often get involved is as observers who can use their personal telescopes to add research. This kind of work is supported by citizen science projects like the American Association of Variable Star Observers, the Puckett Observatory World Supernova Search, and the PACA project, and many others. The raw images then need to be processed. For instance, images of the moon taken from orbiting spacecraft may start out appearing oddly distorted because of the angle of the camera and motion of the spacecraft. Once the useful images are corrected, the long hard road to science can begin. The first step is processing them in ways that make them useful. Processed images are then examined in a variety of ways. Images of star fields, for example, can be analyzed with software that measures the brightness of the stars and flags all the other non-stellar objects that may have crept into the field. Images of planetary surfaces can be analyzed by eye to look for different geographic features. This kind of analysis is another place where citizen scientists can get involved. Projects like those you find on CosmoQuest invite you to help scientists analyze images for specific features that software isn't capable of identifying. CosmoQuest is currently seeking additional funding sources and has temporarily paused its online citizen science programs. I'll be sure to let you know when their system is back up online. And a paper in the February 19 issue of the Astrophysical Journal Letters announced that a citizen scientist in the Backyard World's Planet 9 project found an ancient white dwarf encircled by puzzling rings. J0207 was found through Backyard Worlds, Planet 9, a project led by Mark Kushner, co-author and astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, that asked volunteers to sort through flipbooks of image data from the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE, observatory. Melina Thevenal, co-author and a citizen scientist in Germany working on the project, initially thought the infrared signal was bad data. Astronomers suspect this could be the first known white dwarf with multiple dust rings. She was searching through the ESA's Gaia archives for brown dwarfs, objects too large to be planets and too small to be stars, when she noticed J0207. When she looked at the source in the WISE infrared data, it was too bright and too far away to be a brown dwarf. Thevenot passed her findings along to the Backyard World's Planet 9 team. 
John Davies, an astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and Kushner contacted collaborator Adam Bergasser at the University of California to obtain follow-up observations with the Keck 2 telescope at the WM Keck Observatory in Hawaii. That's a really motivating aspect of their search, said Thavenal, one of more than 150,000 citizen scientists on the Backyard Worlds project. The researchers will move their telescopes to look at worlds you've discovered. What I especially enjoy, though, is the interaction with the awesome research team. Everyone is very kind, and they're always trying to make the best out of our discoveries. The stars forcing researchers to reconsider models of planetary systems that could help us learn about the distant future of our solar system. This white dwarf is so old that whatever processes feeding the material into its rings must operate on billion-year timescales, says Davies. Most of the models scientists have created to explain rings around white dwarfs only work well up to about 100 million years. So this star is really challenging our assumptions of how planetary systems evolve. J0207 is located around 145 light-years away in the constellation Capricornus. For more information about Backyard Worlds Planet 9, visit backyardworlds.org and find out about NASA's WISE mission over at nasa.gov forward slash WISE. So this wraps up this month's episode of Galaxy Rise. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to all the musicians, labels, and the science communicators who's helped me make this show what it is. Galaxy Rise is a production of Star Stuff Studios and is hosted by me, Dustin Ruoff. Let me know what you think by emailing me over at hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com, hit me up on Twitter at rise underscore galaxy, search Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook and YouTube, or visit www.galaxyrise.com. Until next month, clear skies. <laughs>